Section 10 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4. A Winter of Discontent. Chapters 1 to 5. Chapter 1. The winter of 1915 was, I think, the worst of all. There was a settled hopelessness in it which was heavy in the hearts of men, ours and the enemy's. In 1914 there was the first battle of Ypres, when the bodies of British soldiers lay strewn in the fields beyond this city, and their brown lines barred the way to Calais, but the war did not seem likely to go on forever. Most men believed, even then, that it would end quickly, and each side had faith in some miracle that might happen. In 1916-17 the winter was foul over the fields of the Somme after battles which had cut all our divisions to pieces and staggered the soul of the world by the immense martyrdom of boys, British, French, and German, on the Western Front. But the German retreat from the Somme to the shelter of their Hindenburg line gave some respite to our men and theirs from the long-drawn fury of attack and counter-attack and from the intensity of gunfire. There was at best the mirage of something like victory on our side, a faint flickering up of the old faith that the Germans had weakened and were nearly spent. But for a time in those dark days of 1915 there was no hope ahead, no mental dope by which our fighting men could drug themselves into seeing a vision of the war's end. The Battle of Luce and its aftermath of minor massacres in the ground we had gained, the new horror of that new salient, had sapped into the confidence of those battalion officers and men who had been assured of German weakness by cheery, optimistic, breezy-minded generals. It was no good, some of those old gentlemen saying, we've got em beat, when from Hooge to the Hohenzollern Redoubt, our men sat in wet trenches under ceaseless bombardment of heavy guns, and when any small attack they made by the orders of the high command which believed in small attacks, without much plan or purpose, was only asking for trouble from German counterattacks by mines, trench mortars, bombing sorties, poison gas flamethrowers, and other forms of frightfulness which made a dirty mess of flesh and blood without definite result on either side beyond piling up of the lists of death. "'It keeps up the fighting spirit of men,' said generals. "'We must maintain an aggressive policy.' They searched their trench maps for good spots where another small operation might be organized. There was a competition among the corps and divisional generals as to the highest number of raids, mine explosions, trench-grabbings undertaken by their men. My corps, one old general told me over a cup of tea in his headquarters mess, beats the record for raids. His casualties also beat the record, and many of his officers and men called him, just bluntly and simply, our old murderer. They disliked the necessity of dying, so that he might add one more raid to his heroic competition with the corps commander of the sector on the left. When they waited for the explosion of a mine, which afterward they had to rush in a race with the German bombing parties, some of them saw no sense in the proceeding, but only the likelihood of having legs and arms torn off by German stick bombs or shells. What's the good of it? they asked. 
and could find no answer except the satisfaction of an old man listening to the distant roar of the new tumult by which he had quotes, raised hell again chapter two the autumn of nineteen fifteen was wet in flanders and artois where our men settled down knee-deep where the trenches were worst for the winter campaign on rainy days as i remember a high wind hurtled over the flemish fields but it was moist and swept gusts of rain into the faces of men marching through mud to the fighting lines and of our other men doing sentry on the fire steps of trenches into which water came trickling down the slimy parapets when the wind dropped at dusk or dawn a whitish fog crept out of the ground so that rifles were clammy to the touch and a blanket of moisture settled on every stick in the dugouts and nothing could be seen through the veil of vapor to the enemy's lines where he stayed invisible he was not likely to attack on a big scale while the battlefields were in that quagmire state an advancing wave of men would have been clogged in the mud after the first jump over the slimy sandbags and to advance artillery was sheer impossibility nothing would be done on either side in the stick-in-the-mud warfare and those trench raids and minings which had no object except quotes, to keep up the spirit of men there was always work to do in the trenches draining them strengthening their parapets making their walls tiling or boarding their floorways timbering the dugouts and after it was done another rainstorm or snowstorm undid most of it and the parapet slid down the water poured in the spaces were open for german machine-gun fire and there was less head cover against shrapnel bullets which mixed with the raindrops and high explosives which smashed through the mud the working parties had a bad time and a wet one in spite of waders and gum-boots which were served out to the lucky ones some of them wore a new kind of hat seen for the first time and greeted with guffaws the tin hat which later became the headgear of all fighting men it saved many head wounds but did not save body wounds and every day the casualty lists grew longer in the routine of a warfare in which there was quotes, nothing to report our men were never dry they were wet in their trenches and wet in their dugouts they slept in soaking clothes with boots full of water and they drank rain with their tea and ate mud with their bully and endured it all with the philosophy of grin and bear it and laughter as i heard them laughing in those places between explosive curses on the other side of the barbed wire the germans were more miserable not because their plight was worse but because i think they lacked the english sense of humor in some places they had the advantage of our men in better trenches with better drains and dugouts due to an industry with which ours could never compete here and there as in the ground to the north of Hooge, they were in a worse state with such rivers in their trenches that they went to enormous trouble to drain the belvarda lake which used to slop over in the rainy season those field-grade men had to wade through a sloth of despond to get to their line and at night by Hooge, where the lines were close together only a few yards apart our men could hear their boots squelching in the mud with sucking gurgling noises they're drinking soup again said our humorous there at Hooge, germans and english talked to one another out of their common misery 
"'How deep is it with you?' shouted a German soldier. His voice came from behind a pile of sandbags, which divided the enemy and ourselves in a communication trench between the main lines. "'Up to our bloody knees!' said an English corporal, who was trying to keep his bombs dry under a tarpaulin. "'So, you are lucky fellows. We are up to our belts in it!' It was so bad in parts of the line during November storms that whole sections of trenches collapsed into a chaos of slime and ooze. It was the frost, as well as the rain, which caused this ruin, making the earthworks sink under their weight of sandbags. German and English soldiers were exposed to one another like ants upturned from their nests by a minor landslide. They ignored one another. They pretended that the other fellows were not there. They had not been properly introduced. In another place, reckless because of their discomfort, the Germans crawled upon their slimy parapets and sat on top to dry their legs and shouted, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Our men did not shoot. They, too, sat on the parapets, drying their legs and grinning at the gray ants yonder until these incidents were reported back to GHQ, where good fires were burning under dry roofs, and stringent orders came against, quotes, fraternization. Every German who showed himself was to be shot. Of course, any Englishman who showed himself, owing to a parapet falling in, would be shot too. It was six of one and half a dozen of the other, as always, in this trench warfare. But the dignity of GHQ would not be outraged by the thought of such indecent spectacles as British and Germans refusing to kill each other on sight. Some of the men obeyed orders, and when a German sat up and said, Don't shoot! plugged him through the head. Others were extremely short-sighted. Now and again Germans crawled over to our trenches and asked meekly to be taken prisoner. I met a few of these men and spoke with them. "'There's no sense in this war,' said one of them. "'It is misery on both sides. There is no use in it.' That thought of war's futility inspired an episode which was narrated throughout the army in that winter of fifteen, and led to curious conversations in dugouts and billets. Above a German front-line trench appeared a plank on which, in big letters, was scrawled these words, THE ENGLISH ARE FOOLS. NOT SUCH BLOODY FOOLS AS ALL THAT, said a sergeant, and in a few minutes the plank was smashed to splinters by rifle fire. Another plank appeared, with other words, THE FRENCH ARE FOOLS. LOYALTY TO OUR ALLIES CAUSED THE DESTRUCTION OF THAT BOARD. A THIRD PLANK WAS PUT UP. WE'RE ALL FOOLS. LET'S GO HOME. The board was also shot to pieces, but the message caused some laughter, and men repeating it said, There's a deal of truth in those words. Why should this go on? What's it all about? Let the old men who made this war come and fight it out among themselves at Hooge. The fighting men have no real quarrel with one another. We all want to go home to our wives and our work. But neither side was prepared to go home first. Each side was in a trap, a devil's trap, from which there was no escape. Loyalty to their own side, discipline, with death the penalty behind it, spell words of old tradition, obedience to the laws of war or to the caste which ruled them, all the moral and spiritual propaganda handed out by pastors, newspapers, generals, staff officers, old men at home, exalted women, female furies, a deep and simple love for England and Germany, pride of manhood, fear of cowardice, a thousand complexities of thought and sentiment 
prevented men on both sides from breaking the net of fate in which they were entangled and revolting against that mutual unceasing massacre by arising from the trenches with a shout of we're all fools let's all go home in russia they did so but the germans did not go home too as an army and a nation they went on to the peace of brest litovitsk and their doom but many german soldiers were converted to that gospel of we're all fools and would not fight again with any spirit as we found at times after august eighth in the last year of the war chapter three the men remained in the trenches and suffered horribly i have told about lice and rats and mine shafts there another misery came to torture soldiers in the line and it was called trench foot many men standing in the slime for days and nights in field boots or puttees lost all sense of feeling in their feet these feet of theirs so cold and wet began to swell and then to go dead and then suddenly to burn as though touched by red-hot pokers when the reliefs went up scores of men could not walk back from the trenches but had to crawl or be carried pick-a-back by their comrades to the field dressing stations so i saw hundreds of them and as the winter dragged on thousands the medical officers cut off their boots and their puttees and the socks that had become part of their skins exposing blackened and rotting feet they put oil on them and wrapped them round with cotton wool and tied labels to their tunics with the name of that new disease trench foot those medical officers looked serious as the number of cases increased this is getting beyond a joke they said it is pulling down the battalion strength worse than wounds brigadiers and divisional generals were gloomy and cursed the new affliction of their men some of them said it was due to damned carelessness others were inclined to think it due to deliberate malingering at a time when there were many cases of self-inflicted wounds by men who shot their fingers away or their toes to get out of the trenches there was no look of malingering on the faces of those boys who were being carried pick-a-back to the ambulance trains at remy siding near puporinga with both feet crippled and tied up in bundles of cotton wool the pain was martyrizing like that of men tied to burning faggots for conscience sake in one battalion of the forty ninth west riding division there were over four hundred cases in that winter of fifteen other battalions in the ypres salient suffered as much it was not until the end of the winter when oil was taken up to the trenches and rubbing drill was ordered two or three times a day that the malady of trench foot was reduced and at last almost eliminated the spirit of men fought against all that misery resisted it and would not be beaten by it a sergeant of the west riding division was badly wounded as he stood thigh-high in water a bomb or a trench mortar smashed one of his legs into a pulp of bloody flesh and splintered bone word was passed down to the field ambulance and a surgeon came up splashed the neck in mud with his instruments held high the operation was done in the water red with the blood of the wounded man who was then brought down less a leg to the field hospital he was put on one side as a man about to die but that evening he chattered cheerfully joked with the priest who came to anoint him and wrote a letter to his wife i hope this will find you in the pink as it leaves me he began he mentioned that he had an accident which had taken one of his legs away 
"'But the youngsters will like to play with my wooden peg,' he wrote, and discussed the joke of it. The people round his bed marveled at him, though day after day they saw great courage, such courage as that of another man who was brought in mortally wounded and lay next to a comrade on an operating table. "'Stick it, lad,' he said. "'Stick it!' and turned his head a little to look at his friend. Many of our camps were hardly better than the trenches. Only by duckboards could one walk about the morass in which huts were built and tents were pitched. In the wagon lines, gunners tried in vain to groom their horses, and floundered about in their gum-boots, cursing the mud which clogged bits and chains and bridles, and could find no comfort anywhere between Dickebusche and Locre. Chapter 4 The Hohenzollern Redoubt near Foss 8, captured by the Ninth Scottish Division in the Battle of Luce, could not be held then under concentrated gunfire from German batteries, and the Scots and the guards who followed them, after heavy losses, could only cling on to part of a communication trench on the southeast side of the earthworks, nicknamed Big Willie, near another trench called Little Willie. Our enemies forced their way back into some of their old trenches in this outpost beyond their main lines, and in spite of the chaos produced by our shell-fire, built up new parapets and sandbag barricades, flung out barbed wire, and dug themselves into this graveyard where their dead and ours were strewn. Perhaps there was some reason why our generals should covet possession of the Hohenzollern Redoubt, some good military reason beyond the spell of a high-sounding name. I went up there one day, when it was partly ours, and stared at its rigid waves of mine craters and trench parapets and upheaved chalk, dazzling white under a blue sky, and failed to see any beauty in the spot or any value in it, so close to the German lines that one could not cough for fear of losing one's head. It seemed to me a place not to gain and not to hold. If I had been a general, appalling thought, I should have said, let the enemy have that little hell of his. Let men live there among half-buried bodies and crawling lice and the stench of rotting flesh. There's no good in it for us, and for him will be an abomination dreaded by his men. But our generals desired it. They hated to think that the enemy should have crawled back to it after our men had been there. They decided to bite it off, that blunt nose which was thrust forward to our line. It was an operation that would be good to report in the official communique. Its capture would, no doubt, increase the morale of our men after their dead had been buried and their wounded patched up and their losses forgotten. It was to the 46th Midland Division that the order of assault was given on October 13th, and into the trenches went the lace-makers of Nottingham and the potters of the five towns and the bootmakers of Leicester, North Staffordshire, and robin hoods and sherwood foresters on the night of the twelfth on the following morning our artillery concentrated a tremendous fire upon the redoubt followed at one p m by volumes of smoke and gas the chief features of this part of the german line were on the right a group of colliers houses known as the couronne de pekin and a slag heap known as the dump to the northeast of that bigger dump called fosse eight and on the left another group of cottages and another black hillock farther to the right of the fosse. These positions were in advance of the Hohenzollern redoubt which our troops were to attack. It was not an easy task. It was hellish. 
Intense as our artillery fire had been, it failed to destroy the enemy's barbed wire and front trenches sufficiently to clear the way, and the Germans were still working their machine guns when the fuses were lengthened, the fire lifted, and the gas clouds rolled away. I saw that bombardment on the morning of Wednesday, October 13th, and the beginning of the attack from the slag heap close to some of our heavy guns. It was a fine clear day, and some of the French miners living round the pitheads on our side of the battle line climbed up iron ladders and coal heaps, roused to a new interest in the spectacle of war which had become a monotonous and familiar thing in their lives, because the intensity of our gunfire and the volumes of smoke clouds and certain strange whitish vapor which was wafted from our lines toward the enemy stirred their imagination, dulled by the daily din of guns, to a sense of something beyond the usual flight of shells in their part of the war zone. The English are attacking again was the message which brought out these men still living among ruined cottages on the edge of the slaughter-fields. They stared into the mist where, beyond the brightness of the autumn sun, men were about to fight and die. It was the same scene that I had watched when I went up to the Luce Redoubt in the September battle, a flat, bare, black plain crisscrossed with the whitish earth of the trenches rising a little toward Luce and then falling again, so that in the village there only the tower bridge was visible, with its steel girders glinting high over the horizon line. To the left the ruins of Hulluck fretted the low-lying clouds of smoke, and beyond a huddle of broken houses far away from the town of Hens. Foss Eight and the Hohenzollern Redoubt were hummocks of earth faintly visible through drifting clouds of thick, sluggish vapor. On the edge of this battleground the fields were tawny under the golden light of the autumn sun, and the broken towers of village churches, red roofs shattered by shell-fire, trees stripped bare of all leaves before the wind of autumn touched them, were painted in clear outlines against the gray-blue of the sky. Our guns had been invisible. Not one of all those batteries which were massed over a wide stretch of country could be located before the battle by a searching glass. But when the bombardment began, it seemed as though our shells came from every field and village for miles back, behind the lines. The glitter of those bursting shells stabbed through the smoke of their explosion with little twinkling flashes, like the sparkle of innumerable mirrors, heliographing messages of death. There was one incessant roar, rising and falling in waves of prodigious sound. The whole line of battle was in a grayish murk, which obscured all landmarks so that even the tower bridge was but faintly visible. Presently, when our artillery lifted, there were new clouds rising from the ground and spreading upward in the great dense curtain of a fleecy texture. They came from our smoke-shells, which were to mask our infantry attack. Through them and beyond them rolled another wave of cloud, a thinner, whiter vapor, which clung to the ground and then curled forward to the enemy's lines. That's our gas said a voice in one of the slag heaps amid a group of observers english and french officers and the wind is dead right for it said another voice the germans will get a taste of it this time then there was silence and some of those observers held their breath as though that gas had caught their own throats and choked them a little they tried to pierce through that bar of cloud to see the drama behind its curtain men caught in those fumes the terror-stricken flight before its advance the sudden cry of the enemy trapped in their dugouts. Imagination leaped out through invisibility to the realization of the things that were happening beyond. 
From our place of observation there were brief glimpses of the human element in the scene of impersonal powers and secret forces, across a stretch of flat ground beyond some of those zigzag lines of trenches little black things were scurrying forward they were not bunched together in close groups but scattered some of them seemed to hesitate and then to fall and lie where they fell others hurrying on until they disappeared in the drifting clouds it was the foremost line of our infantry attack led by the bombers the germans were firing tempests of shells some of them were curiously colored of a pinkish hue or with orange-shaped puffs of vivid green. They were poison shells, giving out noxious gases. All the chemistry of death was poured out on both sides, and through it went the men of the Midland Division. The attack on the right was delivered by a brigade of Staffordshire men, who advanced in four lines toward the Big Willie Trench, which formed the southeast side of the Hohenzollern Redoubt. The leading companies, who were first over our own parapets, made a quick rush, half-blinded by the smoke and gaseous vapors which filled the air, and were at once received by a deadly fire from many machine-guns. It swept their ranks, and men fell on all sides. Others ran on, and little parties flung out in extended order. Young officers behaved with desperate gallantry, and as they fell cheered their men on, while others ran forward shouting, followed by numbers which dwindled at every yard so that only a few reached the Big Willie Trench in the first assault. A bombing party of North Staffordshire men cleared thirty yards of the trench by the rapidity with which they flung their hand-grenades at the German bombers who endeavored to keep them out, and again and again they kept at bay a tide of field-gray men who swarmed up the communication trenches by a series of explosions which blew many of them to bits as bomb after bomb was hurled into their mass. Other Germans followed, flinging their own stick-bombs. The Staffordshires did not yield until nearly every man was wounded and many were killed. Even then they retreated yard by yard, still flinging grenades, almost with the rhythm of a sower who scatters his seed, each motion of the hand and arm letting go one of those steel pomegranates which burst with the noise of a high-explosive shell. The survivors fell back to the other side of a barricade, made in the Big Willie Trench by some of their men behind. Behind them again was another barrier, in case the first should be rushed. It seemed as if they might be rushed now, for the Germans were swarming up Big Willie with strong bombing parties, and would soon blast a way through unless they were thrust beyond the range of hand grenades. It was a young lieutenant named Hawker, with some South Staffordshire men, who went forward to meet this attack, and kept the enemy back until four o'clock in the afternoon. Then only a few living men stood among the dead, and they had to fall back to the second barrier. Darkness now crept over the battlefield and filled the trenches, and in the darkness the wounded men were carried back to the rear, while those who had escaped worked hard to strengthen their defenses by sandbags and earthworks, knowing that their only chance of life lay in fierce industry. Early next morning an attempt was made by other battalions to come to the relief of those who held on behind those barriers in Big Willie Trench. They were Nottingham men, Robin Hoods, and other Sherwood lads, and they came across the open ground in two directions, attacking the west as well as the east ends of the German communication trenches, which formed the face of the Hohenzollern Redoubt. They were supported by rifle grenade fire, but their advance was met by intense fire from artillery and machine-guns, 
so that many were blown to bits or mangled or maimed and none could reach their comrades in big willie trench while one brigade of the midland men had been fighting like this on the right another brigade had been engaged on the left it contained sherwood lester and lincoln men who on the afternoon of october thirteenth went forward to the assault with very desperate endeavor advancing in four lines the leading companies were successful in reaching the hohenzollern redoubt smashed through the barbed wire part of which was uncut and reached the foss trench which forms the north base of the salient machine-gun fire cut down the first two lines severely and the two remaining lines were heavily shelled by german artillery it was an hour in which the courage of those men was agonized they were exposed on naked ground swept by bullets the atmosphere was heavy with gas and smoke all the abomination of battle he moaning of the wounded the last cries of the dying the death crawl of stricken beings holding their broken limbs and their entrails was around them and in front a hidden enemy with unlimited supplies of ammunition and a better position the robin hoods and the men of lincoln and lesshire were sustained in that shambles by the spirit that had come to them through the old yeoman stock in which their traditions were rooted and those who had not fallen went forward past their wounded comrades past these poor bloody moaning men to the german trenches behind the redoubt at two fifteen p m some monmouth men came up in support and while their bombers were at work some of the lincolns pushed up with the machine-gun to a point within sixty yards from the foss trench where they stayed till dark and then were forced to fall back at this time parties of bombers were trying to force their way up the little willie trench on the extreme left of the redoubt and here ghastly fighting took place some of the lesters made a dash three hundred yards up the trench but were beaten back by overpowering numbers of german bombers and bayonet men and again and again other midland lads went up that alleyway of death flinging their grenades until they fell or until few comrades were left to support them as they stood among their dead and dying single men held on throwing and throwing until there was no strength in their arms to hurl another bomb or until death came to them yet the business went on through the darkness of the afternoon and into the deeper darkness of the night lit luridly at moments by the white illumination of german flares and by the flash of bursting shells isolated machine-guns in uncaptured parts of the redoubt still beat a tattoo like the ruffle of war-drums and behind the barriers in the big willie trench came the sharp crack of english rifles and dull explosions of other bombs flung by other englishmen very hard pressed that night in the outer trenches at the nose of the salient fresh companies of sherwood lads were feeling their way along mixed up confusedly with comrades from other companies wounded or spent with fighting but determined to hold the ground they had won some of the robin hoods up little willie trench were holding out desperately and almost at the last gasp when they were relieved by other sherwoods and it was here that a young officer named vickers was found in the way that won him his v c charles jeffrey vickers stood there for hours against a horde of men eager for his death eager to get at the men behind him but they could not approach he and his fellow bombers kept twenty yards or more clear before them and any man who flung himself forward was the target of a hand-grenade 
From front and from flank, German bombs came whizzing, falling short sometimes with a blasting roar that tore down lumps of trench, and sometimes falling very close, close enough to kill. Vickers saw some of his best men fall, but he kept the barrier still intact by bombing and bombing. When many of his comrades were dead or wounded, he wondered how long the barrier would last, and gave orders for another to be built behind him so that when the rush came it would be stopped behind him and over him. Men worked at their barricade, piling up sandbags, and as it was built that young lieutenant knew that his own retreat was being cut off and that he was being coffined in that narrow space. Two other men were with him, I never learned their names, and they were hardly enough to hand up bombs as quickly as he wished to throw them. Away there up the trench the Germans were waiting for a pounce, Though wounded, so that he felt faint and giddy, he called out for more bombs. More, he said, more, and his hand was like a machine, reaching out and throwing. Rescue came at last, and the wounded officer was hauled over the barricade which he had ordered to be built behind him, closing up his way of escape. All through October 14th the Midland men of the 46th Division held on to their ground, and some of the Sherwoods made a new attack clearing the enemy out of the east portion of the redoubt. It was lucky that it coincided with a counter-attack made by the enemy at a different point, because it relieved the pressure there. Bombing duels continued hour after hour, and human nature could hardly have endured so long a struggle without fatigue beyond the strength of men. So it seems, yet when a brigade of guards came up on the night of October 15th, the enemy attacked along the whole line of redoubts and the Midland men, who were just about to leave the trenches, found themselves engaged in a new action. They had to fight again before they could go, and they fought like demons or demigods for their right of way and home, and bombed the enemy back to his holes in the ground. So ended the assault on the Hohenzollern by the Midland men of England, whose division years later helped to break the Hindenburg line along the Great Canal south of St. Quentin. What good came of it, mortal men cannot say, unless the generals who planned it hold the secret. It cost a heavy price in life and agony. It demonstrated the fighting spirit of many English boys who did the best they could, with the rage and fear and madness of great courage, before they died or fell, and it left some living men and others who relieved them in Big Willie and Little Willie trenches, so close to the enemy that one could hear them cough or swear in guttural whispers and through the winter of fifteen and the years that followed the hohenzollern redoubt became another hooge as horrible as hooge as deadly as damnable in its filthy perils where men of english blood and irish and scottish took their turn and hated it and counted themselves lucky if they escaped from its prison-house whose walls stank of new and ancient death among those men who took their turn in the hell of the Hohenzollern were the men of the 12th Division, New Army men, and all of the old stock and spirit of England, bred in the shires of Norfolk and Suffolk, Gloucester and Bedford, and in Surrey, Kent, Sussex, and Middlesex, which meant London, as the names of their battalions told. In September they relieved the guards and cavalry at Luce. In December they moved on to Givenchy and in February they began a long spell at the Hohenzollern. It was there the English battalions learned the worst things of war, 
and showed the quality of English courage. A man of Kent, named Corporal Cotter, of the Buffs, was marvelous in spirit, stronger than the flesh. On the night of March 6th an attack was made by his company along an enemy trench, but his own bombing party was cut off, owing to the heavy casualties in the center of the attack. Things looked serious, and Cotter went back under heavy fire to report and bring up more bombs. On the return journey his right leg was blown off, close below the knee, and he was wounded in both arms. By a kind of miracle, the miracle of human courage, he did not drop down and die in the mud of the trench, mud so deep that unwounded men found it hard to walk, but made his way along fifty yards of trench toward the crater where his comrades were hard-pressed. He came up to Lance Corporal Newman, who was bombing with his sector to the right of the position. Cotter called to him and directed him to bomb six feet toward where help was most needed, and worked his way forward to the crater where the Germans had developed a violent counterattack. Men fell rapidly under the enemy's bomb fire, but Cotter, with only one leg and bleeding from both arms, steadied his comrades, who were beginning to have the wind-up, as they say, issued orders, controlled the fire, and then altered dispositions to meet the attack. It was repulsed after two hours' fighting, and only then did Cotter allow his wounds to be bandaged. From the dugout where he lay, while the bombardment still continued, he called out cheery words to the men until he was carried down fourteen hours later. He received the V.C., but died of his wounds. Officers and men vied with one another, yet not for honor or reward, round these craters of the Hohenzollern, and in the mud, and the fumes of shells, and rain-swept darkness, and all the black horror of such time and place, sometimes in groups and sometimes quite alone, did acts of supreme valor. When all the men in one of these infernal craters were dead or wounded, Lieutenant Lee Smith of the Buffs ran forward with a Lewis gun, helped by Private Bradley, and served it during the fierce attack by German bombers until it jammed. Then he left the gun and took to bombing, and that single figure of his, flinging grenades like an overarm bowler, kept the enemy at bay until reinforcements reached him. Another officer of the Buffs, by name Smelter, withdrew his platoon under heavy fire, and although he was wounded, fought his way back slowly to prevent the enemy from following up. The men were proud of his gallantry, but when he was asked what he had done, he could think of nothing except that, when the Bosch began shelling, I got into a dugout, and when they stopped, I came out again. There were many men like that, who did amazing things, and in the English way said nothing of them. Of that modesty was Captain Augury Dawson, of the West Kents, who did not bother much about a bullet he met on his way to a crater, though it traveled through his chest to his shoulder-blade. He had it dressed, and then went back to lead his men, and remained with them until the German night attack was repulsed. He was again wounded, this time in the thigh, but did not trouble the stretcher man. They had a lot to do on the night of March 18th and 19th, and trudged back alone. It was valor that was paid for by flesh and blood. The honors gained by the 12th Division in a few months of trench warfare, one V.C., 16 D.S.C.'s, 45 military crosses, 34 military medals, were won by the loss and casualties of more than 14,000 men. That is to say, the losses of the Division in that time, made up by new drafts, 
was one hundred per cent, and the Hohenzollern took the highest toll of life and limbs. Chapter 5 I heard no carols in the trenches on Christmas Eve in 1915, but afterward, when I sat with a pint of water in each of my top boots among a company of men who were wet to the knees and slathered with moist mud, a friend of mine raised his hand and said, Listen! Through the open door came the music of a mouth-organ, and it was playing an old tune. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Saviour was born on Christmas Day. Outside the wind was howling across Flanders with a doleful whine, rising now and then into a savage violence which rattled the window-panes, and beyond the booming of its lower notes was the faint, dull rumble of distant guns. "'Christmas Eve,' said an officer, nineteen hundred and fifteen years ago, and now this.' He sighed heavily, and a few moments later told a funny story which was followed by loud laughter. And so it was, I think, in every billet in Flanders and in every dugout that Christmas Eve, where men thought of the meaning of the day, with its message of peace and goodwill, and contrasted it with the great grim horror of the war, and spoke a few words of perplexity, and then, after that quick sigh, how many comrades had gone since last Christmas Day, caught at a jest, and had the courage of laughter. It was queer to find the spirit of Christmas, the little tendernesses of the old tradition, the toys and trinkets of its feast day, in places where death had been busy, and where the spirit of evil lay in ambush. So it was when I went through Armentieres, within easy range of the enemy's guns. Already six hundred civilians, mostly women and children, had been killed there. But still other women were chatting there through broken window panes, and children were staring into little shops, only a few yards away from broken roofs and shell-broken walls, where Christmas toys were on sale. A wizened boy, in a pair of soldier's boots, a French hop-o'-my-thumb in the giant's boots, was gazing wistfully at some tin soldiers, and inside the shop a real soldier, not a bit like the tin one, was buying some Christmas cards worked by a French artist in colored wools for the benefit of English Tommies with the aid of a dictionary. Other soldiers read their legends and laughed at them. My heart is to you. Good luck. To the success. Remind France. The man who was buying the cards fumbled with French money and looked up sheepishly at me, as if shy of the sentiment upon which he was spending it. The people at home will be glad of em, he said. I suppose one can't forget Christmas altogether, though it ain't the same out here. Going in search of Christmas, I passed through a flooded countryside, and found only scenes of war behind the lines, with gunners driving their batteries and limber down a road that had become a riverbed, fountains of spray rising about their mules and wheels, military motor-cars lurching in the mud beyond the pave, dispatch-riders side-slipping in a wild way through broggy tracks, supply columns churning up deep ruts, and then into the trenches of Neuve-Chapelle, if Santa Claus had come that way, remembering those grown-up boys of ours, the old man, with his white beard, must have lifted his red gown high waist-high when he waded up some of the communication trenches to the firing lines, and he would have staggered and slithered, now with one top-boot deep in sludge, 
now with the other slipping off the trench boards into five feet of water as i had to do grasping with futile hands at slimy sandbags to save a headlong plunge into icy water and this old man of peace who loved all boys and the laughter of youth would have had to duck very low and make sudden bolts across open spaces where parapets and earthworks had silted down in order to avoid those sniping bullets which came snapping across the dead ground from a row of slashed trees and a few scarred ruins on the edge of the enemy's lines but sentiment of that sort was out of place in trenches less than a hundred yards away from men lying behind rifles and waiting to kill there was no spirit of christmas in the tragic desolation of the scenery of which i had brief glimpses when i stood here and there nakedly i felt in those ugly places when the officer who was with me said it's best to get a move on here and this road is swept by machine-gun fire and i don't like this corner it's quite unhealthy but that absurd idea of santa claus in the trenches came to my head several times and I wondered whether the Germans would fire a whiz-bang at him, or give a burst of machine-gun fire if they caught the glint of his red cloak. Some of the soldiers had the same idea. In the front-line trench a small group of Yorkshire lads were chaffing one another. "'Going to hang your boots outside the dugout?' asked a lad, grinning down at an enormous pair of waders belonging to a comrade. "'Likely, ain't it?' said the other boy. "'Father Christmas would be a bloody fool to come out here.' they'd be full of water in the morning you'll get some presents i said they haven't forgotten you at home at the word home the boy flushed and something went soft in his eyes for a moment in spite of his steel helmet and mud-stained uniform he was a girlish-looking fellow perhaps that was why his comrades were chafing him and i fancy the thought of christmas made him yearn back to some village in yorkshire most of the other men with whom I spoke treated the idea of Christmas with contemptuous irony. "'A happy Christmas,' said one of them with a laugh. "'Plenty of crackers about this year. Tom Smith ain't in it.' "'And I hope we're going to give the Bosch some Christmas presents,' said another. "'They deserve it, I don't think.' "'No truce this year?' I asked. "'A truce? You're not going to allow any monkey tricks on the parapets?' to hell with christmas charity and all that tosh we've got to get on with the war that's my motto other men said we wouldn't mind a holiday we're fed up to the neck with all this muck the war did not stop although it was christmas eve and the only carol i heard in the trenches was the loud deep chant of the guns on both sides and the shrill soprano of whistling shells and the rattle on the keyboards of machine guns the enemy was putting more shells into a bit of trench in revenge for a raid. To the left some shrapnel shells were bursting, and behind the lines our heavies were busily at work firing at long range. On earth, peace, good will toward men. The message was spoken at many a little service on both sides of that long line where great armies were entrenched with their death machines, and the riddle of life and faith was rung out by the Christmas bells which came clashing on the rain-swept wind with the reverberation of great guns. Through the night our men in the trenches stood in their waders, and the dawn of Christmas Day was greeted not by angelic songs, but by the splutter of rifle bullets all along the line.
End of section 10.